Profess Error, the podcast where we celebrate life in academia through the failures we've experienced, not to celebrate the ways in which we fell down, but the ways in which we've gotten back up. In this episode, Brian and I discuss some of the challenges we've experienced with helping our undergraduate students solve poorly structured problems. We think there's value for their learning, but lots of struggles along the way with getting them to recognize the value and then assessing it, supporting their learning, hopefully find some value in this discussion. Well, welcome to Profess Error. We are joined today um, by Brian Franz, as always. Brian, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm hot. Yeah, it's summer here. Here it's only May, but it's here as hot. well. Yeah, it. I'm I'm ready for the the fall already. Which to be saying this in May is a that's never a good oh, time God. to be wishing no, for, we have for four more months of this. Well, luckily we're inside and where it's nice and cool at the moment, um, and we get mm-hmm. to talk timing wise. This actually relates fairly well to what we're covering today because we're talking a little less about research and a little more about teaching today, which we've just wrapped up our semesters for the academic year. Um, Maybe it's good while we've got some lessons learned to discuss. We're talking about a topic today that you and I have talked about sort of in passing, um, but never really formalized on the podcast, which is when students are struggling and when we as educators are at times struggling to teach them the skills to solve poorly structured problems. Um, This is something that I think we've discussed from a construction perspective that often uh, shows up, but I suspect many people in a lot of different fields still have some version of a poorly structured problem uh, that they need to solve in their their respective domains. So maybe we can start off um, by both of us just taking a moment and defining what does a poorly structured problem mean to you and how does it show up in your coursework so that later as we talk about strategies, you know, has some relevance to what we do in our teaching. So do you want to talk maybe a little first about how do you incorporate them and what do you see as a poorly structured problem for your teaching? Sure. So uh, poorly structured or kind of an unstructured problem to me is um, one where there's not a obvious or known solution uh, that that can be you know readily readily devised, um, and I mean that's real life. I think when when our students get out into the industry, most of the problems that they encounter are going to be uh, unstructured. I mean, obviously, there's going to be some you know processes or practices in order to solve um, common issues that come up, but usually situations are, are unique and they, and they lack some kind of structure that, that needs to be solved. Um, so in, I guess, the class that I have um, the most, or lack of structure uh, included, is our capstone course uh, that I teach, which is uh, the last class that our students take uh, before graduating, our undergraduate students, that is. Um, and so the class is set up um, really as one big unstructured problem uh, where the first third of the class, uh, they're trying to solve that problem and trying to bring some structure to it. And then once they've created some structure to it, they actually solve their own problem uh, in the the second part of the class. So the the way it's set up is um, I basically give uh, students uh, the opportunity to choose a site, a piece of land uh, around Gainesville, which is is where the university is located, um, that's currently for sale. And um, based on that piece of land, uh, they then have to look at zoning. They have to look at what's possible to build there, what's you know what's economically feasible to build there, and propose a project. Um, and so they have to choose a building type that is an income generating property, um, and they have to justify that decision. They have to you know run the numbers on it, um, and then ultimately they have to uh, scope that project, okay, as if they were developers. This asks them to put on kind of the developer's hat uh, rather than the construction management hat, which is what they wear all the time. Mm -hmm. This is kind of unique for them. Uh, And so they put on this other hat and they have to really think through um, a problem that really doesn't have structure. There's so many different solutions. There is no one solution to this problem. There are many solutions that could be all equally viable. Um, and they have to kind of get there and then justify their choice. And it's really critical first part of the class to get that right, because then they use that to inform everything that they do later in the class. And so they're kind of stuck with whatever decisions that they end up making. And they kind of get to see the outcome of some of those decisions and how it affects the design and how it affects their schedule and estimate later. Um, but everything kind of hinges on what they do in that first unstructured portion of the class. 
Was this something you created from scratch or was had that been at UF before you joined? Um, it was, there was a real estate development component to uh, the class when I took it over. Um, I have since tweaked it a bit and given them a, more freedom that they didn't previously have. So I actually made it maybe less structured, less structured right. uh, than it was when I, when I got it. Um, and so that's, some students like it and some students don't. And hopefully we'll talk <laughs> yeah, we'll about, get into that. We'll talk about that a little bit later. That's great. So then one other uh, item that I think would be helpful for a listener that I would also be curious because we haven't talked about this. So they have this this format, we'll say, but not, not really a structure of what they do. Do they see examples from prior years? Either are the presentations public? Do you give them some examples? Do you give them a, a rubric or something? Like is, what do they have to Good. see what an answer looks like? So um, so there are assignments that sort of go with this, okay. right? So there are four assignments that they work on that are all related to this, but you can't just do them sequentially, right? You can't finish all of assignment one, then move on to assignment two. It's things that have to be done in parallel with mm. one another, okay. which again, they hate because it's very iterative. Sure. It's a lot of doing one assignment halfway, starting the other one, getting that one a little far, and then they have to go back and revise another sure. assignment. So it's, it's very iterative. Um, so I, I give them the expectations, like, here's what I am expecting you to deliver to me. And however you go about doing that is sort of your prerogative, right? Um, I do make available to them um, some hard copy examples. So I, I, I do everything digitally, um, but I will print out some exceptional examples from previous years. And I'll, I'll rotate them you know, from time to time that I will make available in my office. So they can come and they can look at them to get a sense of, of what the expectation is for an A, right? I, I want them to see here's what an A will, um, requires. Um, but I, I don't make, you know, the PDFs available to them or anything. Cause I feel like that is almost giving them one solution and then that constrains their yeah. thinking a little bit too much. So I don't mind having a version there that they can come in and look at for a few minutes, but it's not like a library where they can take it out and just have it at home and flip through it at the same, like, I don't, I don't feel like that's productive, but to have something there that they can flip through quickly and just get a sense of what I'm looking for, yeah. I think is important. It, that it's, that is a challenge. And I think what you've talked about is sort of a, a little bit of an old fashioned solution, but also a, a, a practically valuable one. I mean, it, it makes sense if they're in your office, you can see that they're not taking photos or something that they could take it home with. And if it is something where they, Maybe, maybe don't copy and paste, but basically say, okay, from a structure of thought perspective where I be gaining value to forming my own structure, I'll just take this structure and apply right. my fill-in-the-blank Mad exactly. Libs thoughts to whatever exactly. structure they had. It kind of doesn't, doesn't serve its purpose. Exactly. That makes sense. Um, yeah, and so, so I think this will be a great uh, lens to, to look at sort of the poorly structured problems or unstructured problems from your perspective. Um, I'll try to do a similar quick overview of what I do. I'm talking, uh, and you're talking as well about undergrads. I think we could probably uh, apply a lot of these similar topics to grad students, but given that so much of our focus has been on research and grad topics in the past, I'm going to focus uh, undergrad as well. Um, so the course I have, not a capstone course, but it's primarily third and fourth year students, so more senior level students as well. Uh, and there's kind of two ways that poorly structured problems really show up in a big way. One, for quiz questions that we have, we don't do exams or midterms as sort of one one day exams, but we have weekly quizzes. So it's a little more diffuse so they can get more um, feedback. And most of them will ask some kind of scenario and they'll say, within this scenario, what would you do and why? Hmm. Um, and I define this as poorly structured for my purposes because many times we'll give them information and they will say, well, I need other information that you haven't given us. And they may make what they think is a reasonable assumption. Or sometimes we'll give information that they may not need for it, right? Similarly, in the answers, you already talked about this with yours, there might be more than one. There might be infinite answers, right? There's po multiple possible right answers there. Um, so we do this in a quiz format. Uh, that's one way that I do poorly structured um, problems in my teaching. The other way that's a little newer, but in some ways I'm more excited about it from an educational perspective, uh, the course I do relates to technology, right? And so often the feedback we would get from graduating students of our program is they'd say, the program's great, but I didn't learn 
XYZ <laughs> software, right? Exactly. Whatever the software is they want because yeah. they heard in an internship that yeah. this is the new thing that you got to learn. And I didn't learn that. Um, I don't know. Not only do I think it's unsustainable, I think it is a mistake and borderline unethical for us as faculty to say, we are going to learn every new software and teach every new software. I think it's right. unethical or at least wasteful in the sense of the opportunity cost of me doing that means there's so much other more impactful right. work I could be doing that I can't do because I'm learning the ninth CAD program this right. year because it, someone else wanted a slightly different version of CAD. doesn't teach them how to think either. That's a, exactly. It teaches them how to use a piece of software. 100%. I feel like it's not my job as an educator. 100%. So what we've started doing is I've started saying, you're going to learn some new technology, and I don't know what you're going to learn because you will define it. And so we give them – I made the joke about you know Mad Libs before, but you know if you probably remember that from your kid, you mm -hmm. have a sentence with certain blanks, and you fill in the blanks, of an adjective, a verb, or whatever. Here I give them blanks, and I say essentially, I will learn blank. You have to put a, a product name. What is the software that you will use in order to produce? What is the output that I, an instructor, or someone else will see? Right. So if you say I'm going to learn XYZ CAD to be the best darn modeler ever, I can't see that. But if you make a model of your house or apartment, I can see that there's that's externally visible. Um, in order to solve, what's the industry problem that solves? Like, what, what's the context of use? So that's what I give them. Uh, they define their learning objective. They must teach themselves the software. And at the end of the semester, what they have to produce um, are a couple of items. They have basically two tutorials. Uh, one is how do I replicate whatever workflow you had? So the point and click, what buttons do I click? Yep. Uh, the other is how do I plan for the use of or for avoiding the use of your technology based on where it's valuable if I'm more of like a management level. Why would I want this? Why would I not? That kind of thing. Hmm. Um, they give a demonstration video of them being successful doing whatever they've targeted. Um, and then we can get into this more later to try to address people on all ranges of sort of academic uh, excellence in the class, the overachievers and the underachievers. We have a documentation of failures. It's not just an option to fail. They have to fail or they cannot get full credit. Um, and so so this is sort of a, an approach we have um, to help the overachievers who set out to do something that was never going to be possible in a semester mm -hmm. to still be eligible for full credit by submitting these failures to show they're trying. And for those that are kind of saying, I don't want to do this project, it's dumb, I'm just going to do something I already know how to do. If you don't fail and you don't try something new, you're ineligible for full credit. So so that's kind of the, the strategy we've done there. Um, so in both of these problems, the quiz example and this uh, project example, I give them some information. I give them a format, but I don't necessarily tell them all that they need to know or exactly what they need to do to produce an output um, that is is worthy of a you know a grade or whatever they're targeting. So the the well, I think we'll have to talk about this later. But the evaluation issue with that seem the, like the the burden on you to evaluate potentially very different deliverables because they're defining their own problem mm -hmm. and defining their own output, right? And so I could envision you finding yourself looking at very different deliverables, right? Very different. And then same structure having to say, but yeah, right, but then different. having to say, okay, how is this good or is this not good? That that's an interesting, interesting challenge. Mine's a bit more structured in the output. It's true. How they get there is a little bit different. It's even more than like a philosophy thing of uh, or philosophical thing. Like, do we need to know whether this is the most efficient button click workflow or even if it's the best one or even if it's true like did, like did i have to do i have to check it all yeah. or is the learning is the the learn is the is the output just enough of an indicator to know that they did the work and the learning yeah. happened in the work that i know happened because i see the output but the work the actual learning that's hidden from me do i need to see that to know it's there right which is something that i've kind of yeah. wrapped my head around and i'm increasingly growing comfortable with seeing an output that tells me learning happened even if i can't see the learning hmm. but this is that's a little different than what we've typically targeted yeah. we often want to try to see can you solve for x or whatever the right. you know the, the clear learning is that we want so so this is what we do this is how we've been teaching um i think part of why this is worthy of our time for discussion today relates um maybe to to us as faculty that we just said this hasn't been 
something that a lot of faculty have typically taught in the past or a way that they've typically taught. But I think it also relates to the students. Right. As consumers of education in their, you know, I've heard it sometimes called K through 16 now, so kindergarten through undergrad, I would argue that in most contexts there, poorly structured problems are not a part of the education. It's train A, leave station B at 10 a.m., train C, leave station D at 10.30 a.m. If one's traveling this way, one's traveling this way, what time do they cross paths? Mm-hmm. And, and the problem I have with those kinds of problems is just that in the setup and that highly structured setup of giving you here are your inputs this is what i want as an output they've done half or more of the thinking for the yeah. student yep. just by by virtue of giving them that yep. i think this creates a challenge then where students um oftentimes maybe not always but oftentimes have an expectation um, that is not met by a poorly structured assignment or a project or whatever it may be mm-hmm. um and sometimes can have the sense of oh, this is different than my other courses. So the failure here is on you, the instructor, not me. I, I'm a good oh, yeah. consumer of education. Yeah, you didn't provide me all the information that I did. So <laughs> this is really on you. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like that's been part of the struggle with this. So I don't know if you've got any other thoughts and just like what have been some of the hurdles that have made this uh, a challenge from, from your perspective that make it worthy of discussion? Um, I, I, think, I think you hit on it. I, I think that the most prior educational experiences are perhaps overly structured and and it comes from the instructor right like whoever is the faculty or the teacher of the class is the one providing that structure you're providing some boundaries on a problem you're providing walls to it you're providing some assumptions already as part of the problem like when you're overly structuring things and you're doing that because you want the students to you know zero in on one answer zero in on one correct answer and you want to see whether they know how to solve it in a way that will give that one correct answer. Um, and that's where, you know, I think it does a disservice for students once they get to, you know, undergrad because, you know, our job is to prepare them for, you know, a lifelong career. And part of that is, is making them a, a good thinker. Um, and rarely are, are you handed, you know, this beautifully constructed problem. And as a faculty, I love creating beautifully structured problems. I love creating elegant problems that lead to cool answer. I mean, I love doing that, but it does a disservice to to students, I think, in the long run. Yeah. And the more that we can expose them to ambiguity, maybe is the, is the better word of way of thinking about it. Um, I think the better, the more prepared they will be. Yeah. I'm I'm 100% with you. I, I think this push and pull, though, of kind of what we think is right or what is valuable versus what is perceived to be right or valuable by them is is a real challenge, you know, because I I think as, as we've both kind of alluded to early on in the educational experience, they solve these really well-defined problems. So sometimes when they're given a less structured problem like what we've described, it can be um, stressful. I also wonder, like, have we just set them up to not know what the value is in education? Hmm. Like, a common thing that I'll I'll say to others that I work with, we can't really measure learning effectively. We can measure outputs of learning. But, like, what's going on between your ears, in your brain? Hmm. I don't really know effectively what you're learning. I just know the output. Um, And so because I can't really measure learning, and even the outputs – with different ways of outputting things, like we need a currency for this. So we've invented a currency and we call it points, right? And if you think about what we do in, as ac- in academia right now, like we've invented this currency that has no real value outside of academia and it's called points. And if you save up enough points, if you earn enough points, you can buy them, uh, you can purchase or earn a letter, right? And if you get enough letters, you can earn a GPA. And if your GPA is high enough, you can get a term like summa cum laude, magna cum laude. My point being all of these different things are kind of just i don't want to say distractions because i do think there can be value to it but it's sort of these ancillary side ways of quantifying learning and learning's the thing that i feel like both of us are talking about in the poorly structured problems that we're, we're discussing today but that piece of it feels like maybe it's been undervalued and so like putting face on this right like if you give a quiz question where there's multiple right answers i Almost every semester, I'll have someone struggle with, wait, so there's multiple right answers? Yes. So I guess anything I write must be correct. No, (laughs) 
<laughs> and that 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 yeah. they don't see. They're like, well, if there's multiple yeah. right answers, then I can't be wrong. No, you absolutely can be wrong. There yeah. are wrong answers, right? And so, my, my point being, like, th- this is where I feel like we need somehow to help them with the transition, uh, or maybe help ourselves with the transition away from points and letters and all these things are the thing that matters to learning matters but that may also um, involve because we can't know what goes on in in their mind um, that may may also involve some kind of assessment or, or processes in yeah. place where we accept a little more uncertainty about well do i really know what they're learning in this and i'm going to give them a structure that the structure encourages learning or something like that yeah. um, but i'm still trying to figure that out so when I took over the capstone course, um, it had a very rigid rubric mm. associated with each assignment. I bet the students loved it, right? And uh, yeah, that, so it was, or no. and it led to no, they they so it, it led to some weird situations, okay. right? Because it was like, okay, any error was minus two, oh, like minus yeah. two points, right? And the whole assignment maybe was worth. 50 points, right? So you'd look, you'd be evaluating an estimate and okay, they missed something here. This number is not correct or it's not calculating correctly in their, in their spreadsheet. And it would be like minus two, minus two, minus two. You'd look at the end of it and it'd be like, oh my God, a 50%. Like if I go by this rubric, this is a 50%, but it's actually not that bad of an estimate. Like it's pretty good. There's a couple like, you know, stupid errors, but it's not a 50%. And so when I took over the class, I like threw away all the rubrics and, and now it's, it's much more subjective. It's much more, there's still points to it. There's still a currency because I can't get away from yeah, that, me too. but it's much more subjective now. It's much more look at the, look at what's written, look at what they've done and you know, what it, what is it, does it, what does it look like? How much effort did they put into it? How much thought did they put into it? Does it make sense? And it's those kind of questions rather than, oh, you missed, you forgot, you know, this grammar was poor or minus two or you, your number was off by two, minus two. Like it's it's much less punitive, it feels like. I feel like based on my experience, I'm guessing the students hate that. Or no. Um, I, I, Just know, because it feels like there's some wiggle room and I feel like students don't like that in grading. I, see, I, I've, I've found that I get, I mean, yes, there are once we I release, you know, grades that I, I do get a few students who come to my my office to you know negotiate something oh, where yeah. they feel like oh I wrote enough you know I should but honestly it's like on a 300 point assignment it's like five points either way mm-hmm. like it gets pretty close yeah. and for the most part students know you know the the quality of their work they know what they're submitting mm-hmm. and so when they get the grade that they expect it's like okay yeah I mean I, I didn't really put as much time into this. I didn't have time to work through it enough. And I kind of just went with something and it doesn't surprise me when I got to see like hmm. it, it's they're okay with it. Um, so I haven't, I've found that they like it better to be honest. That's interesting. Um, maybe it's just the way the class is structured. Maybe. Or not structured. <laughs> I, yeah, because I, I, I'm just thinking that my experience, I, I feel like frequently I, I, I see the other side, right? And in terms wow. of the negotiations, it's it's often a situation for me of I'll give, here's the, here's the format, right, to what I want, whether it be a quiz question, the project, whatever. Here's the format of what I want. The student listening to the, the, the input I'm giving, whether it be project description or quiz question, they don't fully understand the first time what I'm asking for. And based on that lack of understanding or, or or maybe extrapolating based on the prior courses that didn't ask mm. questions like this, right, they give an answer that clearly doesn't address what I've sought out. And they get a grade that aligns with the quality of their work, which may be lower than they wanted. And they come back thinking, well, I've been an A student for all of the past 13 years of my educational career. Now I've gotten a D. Well, the only thing that's changed here is you, the faculty. It must have been this question. Mm-hmm. And and it's this, um, it's almost like I found that the students who can benefit, it sometimes can benefit the most from this style of thinking are the least aware that they mm-hmm. need this type of thing. So just putting a face on this for my kind of mm-hmm. course, right? If I say something about why would you implement whatever technology and whatever uh, uh, type of project and how would the use of this technology uh, provide value based on what you've, you've laid out? You know, they might give a response like, I would use this to save money. 
and and that's it right there right and if they don't explain how it it how yeah. it would save the money like what about the the use of this technology would save money or something like that they would get half or perhaps less credit on it hmm. um and sometimes the students that I'm, that that struggle with this kind of problem would say, "Are you telling me we shouldn't be trying to save money on projects? Is that what you're saying?" Mm. Which, of course, is not what I'm saying. And right, right, right. we want right. that, but but the answer didn't really get at what I was seeking in the question. And so, gotcha. where I'm going with this is, it just feels like I've frequently not had as positive experiences like as I guess yeah. you have had. Yeah, I mean, it may be come down to expectations, right? So, like, again, this is where I, I have it. Here's an A. Here's what an A looks like. It's it's easy to point to it and say, here's what an A looks like. Here's yours. <laughs> Tell me where you think it belongs. Out of curiosity, so how many take you, right, because you, you had mentioned you print out, you have the physical thing. Like, yeah, how many yeah. take you up on that offer as, like, a percentage of your students? I would guess it's a tiny uh, fraction. It's not It's not huge. Um, out of, I would say, probably, like, 20%. Oh, that's more right. than I would. I was thinking you yeah. were going to say this is a sub 5%. No, 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 probably 20% because, okay. uh, you know, a lot of folks come to my office hours and maybe are asking a question about the class. And so while they're there, they're like, hey, let me uh, flip through this real quick. Let me look at it. Um, and then, then they'll head out. But yeah, I'd say it's about 20%. Okay. That's not bad. I, mean, I wonder if that's also the most conscientious and the most overachieving could be. 20% anyway that are just going to put in the time to go to the office. But either way, I mean, that's still a pretty good turnout, better than I would have expected. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's expectations uh, with the class. I mean, I said it at the very beginning. I tell them like that there is no, you know, one one answer. There is no one way of doing this. You're going to have to work through it. I'm here to answer questions. We'll have some working days in class where we'll do nothing but just I'll go around and answer your questions. Mm -hmm. And they have like you know four to five weeks to work on a set of four assignments. So it may be a time thing as well. Like they have a lot of time to muse and puzzle through uh some of their their solutions it's not like i'm saying here's an hour figure it out it's here's four weeks maybe this is a little in the weeds but i'm asking more selfishly so i don't know if a listener okay. will appreciate so when you do that you say they have four mm -hmm. weeks or whatever do mm -hmm. you have intermediate milestones in those four weeks that makes them actually use the four weeks like how do nope. you how do you avoid them just waiting till week three and a half or 3.75 and saying now i'll get started on this that happens. I mean, that that absolutely happens. I I, I say because part of the course in my mind is this is also you learning how to manage your own time. Yeah, right. Totally. And you're going to have a deliverable, and it's going to be due, and you have other things going on, and now it's time for you to plan out how and when you're going to get this done. And so I don't have intermediate deliverables. Mm -hmm. I for the first set of assignments have them track how many hours, like at the very beginning, how many hours they think it's going to take to do every assignment. <laughs> and then at the end, I have them turn in, tell me how many hours it actually took you, yeah. and then use that as a baseline for moving forward because it's always going to be double or triple the amount of time that you think it's going to take you. And it sort of brings that realization to them yeah. of, yeah, that first set of assignments, they may think, I'll do it in a couple of days, no problem. And then they realize, holy crap, it's unstructured and I have no idea what I'm doing and I actually need time to work through it and I don't have it. And they throw something together and they don't do very well on it. Yeah. And then they learn for the next set of deliverables, I need to manage my time better. Yeah. I mean, for, for something like that though, it sounds like you have at least enough uh, intermediate steps with the different deliverables you have there that, that you can fail at one or struggle at one and still yeah. have some chance of recognizing Correct. I have not delivered. I can, I can change my behavior. Correct. And yeah, yeah. Yep. I think that's good. I mean, especially given the novelty of this. I mean, part of the other thing we talked about in passing is how this relates to then the student's perception end of semester as it relates to course evaluations, right? So like a lot of universities, I suspect both of us have some kind of student evaluation toward the end of the semester. How's the course? How's the instructor? And you get feedback. But this kind of project-based or poorly structured or, or problem that more of the uh, definition of learning falls on the student, I think is something that they're not used to seeing such that the evaluations can sometimes be, um, I don't know if it's harsher, but at least more indicative of the course didn't align with expectations. And that certainly can come across quite negatively. I don't know if you've got any experience with that in uh, yours. Yeah, uh, pretty much every every semester. You know, it, it really shows in the written yeah. portion of the evaluations, like the numerical things shake out to be roughly the same. Yeah, me semester. too. But when I go in and look at the written comments, that's where you really see what people thought about the class. And 
I, I have both. Like I have on the positive end, I have students saying, oh, this was a you know, great experience. This really prepared me. I got to see how everything came together and clicked. And I have that side, right, that likes the unstructured nature of it. And then I've got the other side yep. uh, where, you know, they just hate the fact that, um, you know, I, I don't walk them through all the steps. Um, and they ask every every time I get, hey, you need more tutorial videos. Show me exactly how to how to how to solve this problem, how to walk through this thing, how to solve this particular assignment. Mm -hmm. Like they want a very structured walkthrough. I have some students that you know say I got really discouraged, you know, working in this course because there were just too many options. I didn't know you know what what to do at what time, and I felt like I really wasted a lot of time going down, you know, dead ends before I realized, you know, I had to do something else. And, you know, that was discouraging and, and they, they kind of see, cause it makes them understand what they don't know, mm -hmm. right. What they didn't pick up in our program and they get to see everything that they don't know. And it, it sort of, it does, I could see where it would be discouraging, but a lot of that comes through in the comments. And there's not a whole lot I can do about that because that's the nature of the class. And to be honest, sometimes I'm glad to see those kinds of comments because it makes me, you know, see that the class is doing what it's supposed to be doing. Like it's presenting with an unstructured problem and it is challenging. It's not easy. Like if it were easy, it wouldn't be a capstone. Yeah. Well, and, and you're also hitting on the, the kind of the portions of learning that we've traditionally omitted, right? Like where you struggled, where you had difficulty, right? This whole podcast, where celebrating failure, like that's so much of what leads to transformative learning. And the, the, the whole point accounting that lead to letter grades and GPAs, that doesn't really focus on where you failed. And if it does, it only does in sort of the negative punitive way, even if that led to far more instrumental learning than the right. person who just happened to get A's the first shot at it. Right. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree. I think that's that's excellent. Um, with evals, I've definitely seen uh, some similar patterns. My numbers similarly tend to typically be unexciting. Usually I'll have a, a couple people that are on like the zero out of seven or one out of seven or whatever. Like <laughs> you get right? someone who goes, yeah, there's always a couple of those down the evaluation. Thing. But as you as you point out, the written comments, almost always more informative. One thing I'll mention that, that so many of what you said, I won't repeat, but I had similar sure. things. One thing that I do get frequently that I find to be interesting and, and maybe a little bit concerning again um, students will give comments on these types of projects and they'll say, I had to do this project on whatever the topic, technology in mm -hmm. my case, business development, UK, whatever, um, real estate development, I guess. Um, and they would say, I don't even want to be a technology professional. Yeah. Or in your case, I don't even want to go into the real estate. Yeah. Why am I having to do this? And I find myself being like, I think you're missing the point. Like, do you go yeah. to a, a, an algebraic exam and say, I don't plan to be solving for X. That's not what I'm going to do. Or go right. to a physics uh, and say, and I don't have to roll bowling balls down the hill to yeah. figure out what the speed is. Or yeah. what... The point being, like, they don't know what they're going to do in their career. We kind of, I think, openly acknowledge that what we're doing in college uh, or any university setting is not to say that every single facet of every single course will sometime come neatly into play in your lives. But instead, th this is a suite of topics that we feel is necessary for you to have such that when you get out, some of it is going to help you in succeeding, right? Perhaps, hopefully, much more than had you not had this suite of topics. And I find that that's sometimes a concerning thing of someone not seeing a link between what they're doing in a, in a class project or course project and how it relates to their career. And because they don't immediately see a link must mean that this was a waste. And I just feel like, yeah. no, you're, you're, you're missing it. It's like, you know, you go to the gym to, to w work out and you may play one sport that emphasize, emphasizes certain muscles more, but you're yeah. still probably working out your whole body, right? And that's yeah. kind of what we're doing with the mind. And I, I think sometimes that's missed. Yeah, because, I mean, there are classes of problems, right? I mean, mm -hmm. and despite the fact that we're doing a real estate development problem, it's basically a multi-criteria decision-making problem, right? And mm -hmm. so whether we're dealing with real estate development, whether you're talking about some kind of design alternatives, whatever it might be, it's all the same style of problem. Yeah. You're having multiple criteria that you're having to weigh against each other and ultimately advance one solution that is the best given the information that you have yeah. at that point in time, right? So that's, yes, you may not do real estate development, but I guarantee you're gonna do some kind of multi-criteria decision-making, whether you know it's called that or not, yep. right? 
And that's that's exactly how I try to present it as well. It doesn't always land, right? But mine doesn't happen to be real estate. It's technology. But I say even if you're not going to be a technology person, you're going to want to innovate in some way, hopefully, even if it's a very small uh, procedural thing you want to change, some, some administrative set of tasks you do. You're going to probably have to convince someone that it's worth changing the protocols or whatever whatever applies yeah, to the situation. Yeah. To make that case compelling, to go up to your boss and, and tell him or her, here's why I want to change, right? You're going to have to do a lot of the things I'm talking about, right? How much does it cost? How long is it going to take? What's the training like? What's yeah. the process? Like A lot of the things I'm asking for, you'll still have to be able to justify to get buy-in um, so that, yeah, that, that can be a challenge. Um, maybe let's shift and talk. So we talked a bit about the student perception. Let's talk a little bit about the faculty side. Um, as it relates to assessment. So even though we're targeting more of, I, I think I'm surmising by our chat, what we think to be maybe deeper, more um, impactful forms of learning and in, in uh, approaching these problems, we're still beholden to this currency of points and they got to get points and points have to add into letters and do all this sort of traditional hierarchy and structure of a grade system. How, what's your approach for assessing some of what you've done? You talked about yeah, the old so, rubric and what you didn't yeah, like. Yes, so I dumped that, yeah. right? So the rubric's gone. Um, so really there's, you know, the, the assignments are worth a certain amount of points. So there's a certain maximum potential of points you can get. Um, and there's this, I mean, every assignment's different. So it's really hard to talk about, you know, just one in particular. But there's certain things that I, I'm looking for as I'm, I'm reading it. And so usually it's the argument that's being made. So there's often some argument um, that for one particular building type or why this one site is the best site to choose or, you know, why um, you, why you, why you believe the market can support, you know, this type of building, right? So there's a bunch of arguments that are being made. And so I'm trying to evaluate the quality of that argument. So what evidence do you have to support that argument? Um, you know, and what kind of assumptions are you making when you're making that argument? And if those assumptions were to change, how might your argument fall apart? Um, if for instance, demographics change in that area, mm -hmm. you know, would this still be a viable project? So I'm trying to, there's a list of things that I look through again, it's not a real rubric per se, cause there's no points associated with each of those things, but it's just, I'm really looking at the argument and the quality of the argument that they're making. Do you get a lot of, um, I guess what I would call like circular logic of, you know, why is this appropriate for the market? This is appropriate for the market because the market's demanding this kind of thing. And the people want this mm -hmm. here. And this is really going to succeed because the market demands it. I haven't answered the question. I've restated right. that right. someone should, right. but I, I haven't given it. Like, so that, that was an example of one that would not do well. <laughs> right. And it shouldn't. Right. So, yeah. so maybe then rather than just getting to buy good or bad, like what how would you give feedback in an instructive manner for your students who give that kind of response? Oh, uh, yeah. So usually it's pretty easy because I can just pose questions back to them. Okay. Right. So usually my feedback for those types of assignments is actually a series of questions, okay. right. That, um, they obviously didn't answer if I still had them as I was reviewing that. And mm -hmm. so then they can look at that and say, okay, wow, I, I didn't, I really missed a lot of this argument. I, I'm missing half of what's needed to justify it. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, then, then it seems like an immediate follow-up to that is from a scalability perspective, can you hand off assessment to a grader or teach someone else to, to think in that way? Or do you find yourself saying you, the instructor, actually have to go through all the deliverables and do the grading yourself? Right, because what you're so, describing actually yeah. takes a it's fairly insane. high level of critical yeah. thought. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's a lot of work, yeah. right? When I'm sure. You have a when you have a class of 60-some students and you have these four assignments that you're grading, like it's a lot to read through and, and to really verify. Um, so no, I, I definitely can't do it all myself. Um, and so what it takes is you have to find, I had to find a very specific graduate student mm -hmm. who already has industry experience um, to come in and assist me. And it's a training process, oftentimes to get them to, to think in that way. And so it takes a semester or two to of kind of holding their hand and, and, and having them do some, and then I do some and we compare notes to see whether we're, we're still on the same page to get them to the point where I can say, okay, you look at these, take a first pass. I'll look at them as a second pass and then, and then we're good. Yeah. But it's a very specific student. I can't just go to anyone and ask them to do it. 
I, almost verbatim. That's that's what we've hit to. Um, so my, my course, as I said, is a, a third and fourth year course. Typically, we go to uh, undergrads, but um, sometimes if we have a grad student that, as you say, either has experience or who was uh, like an undergrad and then just decided to do a plus mm-hmm. one kind of master's, that's like that's can be an outstanding student to have because they understand the expectations. Um, but yeah, I found that to be a challenge too, because um, oftentimes the We'll have students that are giving good enough answers to get mm-hmm. the points that do okay to get whatever mm-hmm. you know high grade they want. But when asked to evaluate others, don't necessarily have the uh, skill set to differentiate there. So yeah, that that can be a challenge. It, it's iterative. Like I, honestly, yeah. it it takes me a semester to bring that student sort of up to the ex- level of expectation that I have for for evaluating. Um, you know, the capstone projects. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, I mean, the capstone, so it's interesting too with yours because it's, you mentioned a couple assignments. So there are a few different deliverables, but I'm assuming it's still one bigger deliverable towards the end, some kind of final output that's a bigger lift at the end. So it's probably a, you like, like case in point, we have the weekly quizzes in my course, right? So mm-hmm. if I have a grader, like over each week, it, that iteration can occur just faster. So by the mm-hmm. end of one semester, by halfway through a semester, even yeah. a brand new grader, even if they haven't seen the subsequent quizzes, like they're, they're pretty good at figuring gotcha. out the workflow. Yours, I suspect it's uh, it by... takes the full semester. Right. And so it's because probably everything by, is different. Right. <laughs> so it's probably like, like the second or third semester, the second yeah. time or third time they've done it. Yeah. So you almost need a PhD student who you have for three or four years or, you know, someone that you can leverage for a while to really gain a lot of value yeah so what i've been doing is uh when i can is overlapping yeah that's, student that's so basically have the one student train the other student yeah. for like a semester while they're overlapped and then the other one graduates and then the other one starts so yeah. that's uh i think a great way to do it um I don't have that luxury with mine, but because it's it's weekly quizzes, I, I feel it's less necessary because, like I yeah. say, by midway through, the happens quicker. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Um, for the project though that I talked about, the technology project in ours, I still have uh, one of essentially a grad student uh, go through that, and that one is interesting because it doesn't have a rubric in the specific sense, right? It has it has a rubric in the sense of does the section include all of what we were seeking? And, and based on what it does or doesn't include, they get whatever portion of the grade uh, relates to what they've done. But in terms of going in and saying, I'm going to download every piece of software that they use and try the work, mm-hmm. a lot of those things we're not doing. Now, they submit a demo video so I can I can see what they've submitted. Mean, the, the evidence is already there. But the point I'm getting at is a lot of the assessment is less on is this really the best way to do the thing you've documented or whatever? Like we're not really going through in that kind of detail with it. So the grading process feels a little bit different than, you know, than, than a typical technology course would be on it. Um, but that's how we've approached it in terms of the one thing I mentioned earlier that I'll, I'll hit on in case others, you know, have an interest in this, the, the failures that I talked about, they have to document failures, right? Um, this has been an interesting challenge because we've tried to say you have to uh, submit a genuine uh, failure. So if I say uh, my computer was unplugged uh, and when I went to turn it on, it didn't start. You don't get like you don't get credit for that because you yeah, should. Right. That's unrelated to your work. You right, should have known lame. that going in. <laughs> yeah, right. That's, yeah. Right. But if it's something like you go in and you say I'm trying to do this visualization application and I had a CAD model from XYZ technology and I tried to import it and it wouldn't accept it right away, so I had to change mm-hmm. file formats through this uh, tertiary program or whatever. Fine, I'm open to that. You learned That's something, good. right? You, that was a, yeah. a failure where you learned something. So this has been an interesting um, experience. Mm-hmm. From again, we're talking sort of students solving poorly defined problems. Because the way I structured it to try to help the over and underachievers was I basically said, if you swing for the fences and you you target something that could never be done, you won't be able to have a demonstration video, right? Because you haven't succeeded at doing the thing you wanted. You can't produce something you haven't done. So if you submit extra failures showing me that you tried other things, you can offset every single point you would have lost from that demonstration video, right? The idea being you may learn Hmm. more through your struggles than others learn through their success. So this is my thought. You swing for the fences, you can still get 100. And if you go the other way and you're an underachiever and say, I don't really want to do this. I'm just going to do something I already know. You still have to fail or you can't get full credit because the failures are Hmm. mandatory. But here's an interesting uh, pattern that we've seen. 
in the vast majority of cases, not always, but the vast majority of cases, students uh, will have the minimum number of failures or fewer. The point being, they they seem to not get, I think because of a cultural thing, like we've we've undervalued failure. Yeah, I yeah. think they see it as being like, oh, that's that's a pain. Like to me, it almost seems like an easier approach and maybe more learning rich approach right. to say, I may not get what I wanted to get done, but I'm going to learn a ton about this thing. And the failures are basically take a screenshot of what happened and give me like a two bullet point. What happened? What'd you learn from it? It's pretty straightforward, right? Yeah. Um, and it's surprising to me, though, that that's not more of uh, gobbled up from the students. Oh, I'll take that opportunity. That's generally ignored. And if that's anything, interesting. Yeah. If anything, I have students that will uh, submit the demonstration video and say, good news. I only had three failures. Well, you need five. Well, I only yeah. have three. Well, then you didn't do it. And, and they don't yeah, like that, right? Yeah. That's, that's poor. Yeah. They do not appreciate that because they say, well, I only had this. Well, then you didn't do something hard enough. Hmm. And so, you know, you should have tried something beyond what you proposed at that point. Um, and so that's an interesting struggle we've hit with that one. That's so I, I have. So when we do the feasibility, the financial feasibility yeah. analysis, um, I do have a part of the assignment description where I ask them to do something similar, where I basically say, if you run the numbers and your project is not feasible on the first try, mm -hmm. right, then tell me what changes you made or what changes you had to make in order to make it feasible. So did you have to make it larger? So you have more leasable area? Did you have to change a, uh, you know, a construction material to cheapen up the building to make it less expensive per square foot? Like, what did you do? Yeah. And Honestly, I get very few responses to that, right? So I think that they don't want to admit that, oh, it wasn't feasible on the first try and they actually had to make some changes. Like I don't, but you get I, I should sense, be requiring it. And you get I the sense though that from subsequent submissions, they get it. They're just not articulating it or do Correct. they not yes. even get it? So I know they're making, I know they're making changes okay. to it, right? Like no one is going to get it feasible on the first go. Yeah. Like you have to be extraordinarily lucky to get you have to pick exactly the right project and exactly the right site with exactly the right site. like too many things have to go right for this to be perfectly financially feasible on the first try it often requires iteration almost always requires iteration and yet very few of them admit to doing iteration <laughs> so i should be requiring it like you do or maybe giving bonus for it i like that idea i think maybe i just think we need we need to yeah. yeah, I think we need to celebrate failure more broadly. I just think like that example you just gave, that's a great learning opportunity for them, right? Talk about applicability in your career. Something will come up where yeah. time is constrained, budget is constrained, uh, one crew dropped out, whatever the issue is, what well, we need to change to make it work because mm -hmm. the situation has, new evidence has emerged in the situation yeah. or whatever. Like what you're describing is so applicable. It just seems like we need to celebrate that more, not as a failure, but as a ability to handle adversity or, or challenges that emerge um but yeah it's it is incredible to me how many don't um how many students don't respond to that or or, or recognize that in in the moment i'm gonna make it required now students are gonna hate you but i'm gonna i'm gonna make it required you know it's funny <laughs> so yeah i I don't know if this is right and what I do, but the the students hating me was a concern because especially when I <laughs> when I, well, I mean when I started look student evals that's an important part of you yeah. know our professional uh, evaluations and that kind of thing. So I told them right up front. I said, "Here's why we're doing failure." I said, "If you're an overachiever and you do something that's never possible, you're eligible for 100. percent If you're and I I kind of just laid out the thing, and what I ended up doing that I think worked mostly okay is I kind of said, "If you're an underachiever." and you're gonna propose a project that you already know how to do, I can't know that. And I, I, like, I, at a certain point I had to right. volunteer. Yeah. I can't know what you do and don't don't know. Understand yeah. you're gonna waste your time and that's your decision. And also understand you still have to learn something new because you still have to show me failures there. Right. But that's a you decision. Um, I, I may be wrong because how could I know, but I don't think most students do that. I think the vast majority take it as an opportunity to learn something mm -hmm. new. Um, but yeah, in terms of the, the appreciating the open-endedness and the, the failure yeah. there, then I don't know if they always do. <laughs> um, so maybe then let's talk about the supporting the actual learning here. So we've talked assessment, which kind of gives us a sense of 
outcome, right? You did okay, you didn't. But, but let's maybe talk about how we, the educator, can intervene and, and offer some constructive suggestions during the process. Maybe it's after an assignment, after a weekly quiz, you know, after an initial deliverable of a project. Um, what have been some of your experiences with how you engage or intervene with maybe students that are, are not getting it? Like what, how do yeah. you decide when to do it and all that kind of thing? Uh, this is hard uh, because it's a really um, fine line between helping and intervening too soon versus yeah. too late, right? Like I, I, too soon is you don't give the student a chance to actually go down and discover that dead end or be creative, right, in their problem solving because you're just basically giving them the answer too early. Yeah. You haven't given them a chance to struggle. Too late, uh, you run the risk of them getting really frustrated with the course and really discouraged and just giving up on it and being like, well, I can't solve this problem, I give up. Yeah. And then they just you know, submit whatever. So it's, it's a really fine line between those two of where, what kind of support you provide. Um, and I tend to err on the too late side, I guess, because I, I would rather have, um, give the student a chance to, to fail, to do whatever, to try at something, to make something work, um, and get a little bit discouraged than the opposite of them just following some template solution that I provided for them yeah. way too early. Um, so that's why I think I get some of those valuation comments about, you know, being discouraged or, you know, where we feel lost or I feel like I wasted a lot of time because I, I tend to let it go maybe a little bit too long, mm -hmm. uh, without intervening. But, um, so stuff that I do, uh, to get people back on track, um, I like to ask a lot of questions of the student. So usually I, I use questions to try to draw their attention to an issue that they're having so like if they just don't know what kind of building should go on this site i start asking them okay well who lives near the site right how old are the people that live near it what, what's their income level to try to get them thinking about wh who might use the building that would go on yeah. that site so i try to guide them via just questioning yeah. and let them come to their own solution. That tends to be the least disruptive, where it's, again, not me telling them what to do, but it's more to get them thinking in the right line rather than just saying, oh, my God, there's so many options. They looked at the yeah. code, and they saw that there's 30 different types of buildings that can go on this mixed-use-zoned property. Like, what the heck do I do? You know, how do you narrow that list? And I try to get them thinking along those lines. Yeah. Yeah, because if it was a well-defined problem, you would have just put that in the problem description. Here, right. Here's the socioeconomic metrics right. or whatever you use for the, and you would have just given that and gotten responses directly related to the right. inputs you gave, and you didn't want that. You wanted them to figure it out. So now right. you're kind of saying, here are the kinds of things I'd, I'd pick up. Right. And for, for that, I'm guessing then what you eventually get from those students after those consultations probably is a like hyper related to whatever topics you volunteered, right? Like I'm guessing they're missing. There's, are they still getting the point of they could go to something else, right? They could also go to what's the proximity to mm -hmm. ports for ship or whatever, like wh whatever the other, other concerns are. Like there's infinite things that could guide it. But my guess is they lock into whatever examples you yeah. give them. So, um, or no. so, well, so I don't usually give them a specific example, okay. but when they then decide on something, Right. So when, when they, when they zero in on something, then they, they say, I'm going to do some combination archery range bar or something. And, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Okay. That's the most Floridian um, design. Of yeah. I'm like, this is, oh God. And I know like, I'm like, this is never going to be feasible in a million years. So then I would ask some other follow on question, right. To say, um, what's, how do you get a liquor license? Mm, yeah. In, in Make them you know, that. I try to sure. get, again, try to steer them away from that again, <laughs> without, you know, telling them, Oh my God, what is this idea? Sure. Yeah. Cause it, you're almost trying to build like the way I, I laugh at that idea. I sometimes say with my student, does it pass your laugh test? Right? Like you, you want them to build up their laugh test of like, okay, this is, this is a little silly. I shouldn't be pitching this. I mean, I want them to have fun with it, but sure. to a point, right? Like, it, that's I want them to do something they're interested in. Yeah, the, the fun thing, that, that's a good point. So you talked about uh, you want it to be difficult, but the right amount of difficult, right? Because mm -hmm. I think that same with fun. Like a lot of these things, it is a little bit of a, a dance on a, sort of a razor's edge or whatever. Because if they get to the point where they say, 
it's so hard or so frustrating that they recategorize your course or your teaching as right. bad or right. a, any other discounted term where I can just put it in the dismissal bucket of it's just mm-hmm. anything that comes out of there. You don't need to think about it. It's just in the bad bucket. I've lost them. Right. This very, I don't know how you come back from that. that. That's that's pretty permanent. But if instead it's it's somewhere on that cusp of, oh, that's tough. Yeah, Professor Franz really wants a lot from us. But did you see his lecture on this? He did give an example or whatever where, where they're still willing to listen and willing to, to take yep. the new inputs from the course or the experience. It is hard to get to that point. And I'm still... In fact, I don't even think there is going to be a broad brush approach that works for all students no, because no. we're trying to provide a, uh, an experience that probably the right experience differs for our students. Mm-hmm. And we have a whole bell curve of students that aren't going to see yep. it the same way. And so maybe it's a futile effort to hope that all of them would like or appreciate it. And, and I don't know, some way we need to repackage it so that they define expectations or something. I don't know. Yeah. yeah the, I mean, as I said, the, the line between intervening too soon and too late is going to vary depending yeah. on the student, right? It's not the same for every student. Yeah, and then part of this even gets to a scalability thing. By the way, I'm I'm saying this, and I, I love what you're describing in terms of the concerns you have. So I'm I'm with you in this, but but yeah. I'm even just thinking, okay, fine. So we're growing, and more you know universities are getting bigger classes, and they yeah. want us to teach more. Like even that, my concerns only compound over time. If you said you're teaching sixty students, well, yeah. when is when it's 120? How how likely are you to even have any sense of when to intervene? Then is it a complete shot in the dark? Where now at least you kind of know what they're doing, right? Like at a certain point, it worries me. Um, this is more more zoomed out, but it worries me yeah. that this kind of learning that we're saying, at least in this discussion, we find to be valuable, will be tacitly discouraged from faculty yeah. just by just by growth and just the impossibility of assessing and, and providing. It's value. onerous. I mean, it's onerous, as yeah. we've described, right, to do the evaluation of this. Yeah. If it were a multiple choice exam, you know, Easy. I'd be done with grading That's in right. an hour. That's right. right. But the way it is, it takes weeks of, of a few hours a day working on these to get get them all evaluated and get them graded. Yeah. So it's definitely more onerous for for faculty. I mean, the the way that I do it, and again, it works for this size class. I if it doubled, I don't know if it would work. But I, I schedule specific working days yeah. uh, during the semester. So it's a day where I'm not covering anything, any new assignment. It's strictly here. You come in and you ask questions. Yeah. So if you're stuck on something, you know, I can help you make progress on it. I can ask you some questions to get you thinking in the right line. Um, but then I put it a lot back on the students. And I, I just say, you are going to have questions in this class. It is impossible to get through this class without asking a single question. Like if you're not asking questions, then I know you're not doing the work. <laughs> so like right. you will have questions. And so I put it on them to say, Ask me anytime, send me an email, come to office hours. I will do whatever I can to answer your questions because I, I know that that's going to help them make progress. Yeah. It doesn't scale well. well. Like if I get 120 students asking me stuff via email, I'm never going to keep up. But yeah. for the current size, it works. Yeah. It's almost like you'd need to do some kind of like a request for information board or something that I you did post that publicly. Too. I tried that. I didn't. Yeah. I did an RFI discussion board. Uh, the problem is that... Um, students are there's social pressure not to post on there because Um, once it's posted on there everyone is accountable for that information yeah so once i post an answer there some people may have to change their work to align with that answer and so some classes used it but then recent classes have come game theoried this out Mm -hmm. to say it's better for all of us if we don't use this So unintended consequence. Yeah, I guess I get that. But then it also just, yeah, then you got more people that are doing not what you've asked for. But then anyway, so then one other thing I would be interested to talk about in this topic of of intervention and and more just strategy for for intervention. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do the same thing in terms of when I try to to decide when do I help and how how much struggle do I let them have before I I Mm -hmm. jump in. Um, Then the other thing that I'll sometimes offer is some form of what I'd call a safety net. Right? Like, do you have some sort of a fallback? They're not getting it. Here's another another thing, right? So you gave an example of someone doesn't know what to think about. Do you have some version of a well-structured problem that you'd offer or, or some other type of safety net that they have if they're just not getting this type of poorly structured problem? Um, not built into the course, um, but just from my perspective, like what I would do if I saw someone that was just totally very far behind, just not getting it, um, I would probably intervene and help them 
more directly yeah. to reduce the number of choices and reduce the number of options. Yeah. So I'd be talking to them and saying, okay, what, what's fixed? What can't change? You know, what have you tried so far? Let's take those off the table and just try to get them to reduce the number of options. Because usually when I see people struggling, it's, okay, I've got three sites that I'm actively considering and there's 10 potential projects on each site and it's just too many options to think about. Like, so they need help in reducing the number. If they can get it down to two or three, they can make a good decision. It's just when they're looking at, you know, 20 or 30 different potential options that it, it, it becomes too much for many of them because they just don't have, um, they haven't had a lot of experience dealing with that many options and yeah. narrowing it down. They don't know how to narrow it down because they've never had to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that makes a lot of sense. I, I think we've done some similar strategies to reduce options, right? In the technology project I talk about, I give them examples. I say, here's uh, 10 different examples of, of what could be acceptable projects. And I tell them after the the sort of hard fat, hard and fast deadline of all your proposals are due here. After this time, I accept zero new proposals. Mm. But then I give them the opportunity. If you didn't get a proposal accepted by that point, pick pick an example from the project description. And I've given them, here's yeah. a few you can do there, um, which is essentially what you're getting at. I'll reduce the opportunity paralysis. I still, even there though, I kind of find myself wondering, is that a good safety net? Or are we? am I sacrificing um, learning for overvaluing the output of a grade for success. Like I'll give you an example, right? Like I ha- I've had students in the past uh, 12 hours before the deadline for that proposal. Um, I'm still trying to contact this company uh, for a license to their software. And they, oh. um, they said they can't get a meeting with me until next week. What should I do? Well, the deadline's in 11 hours or 12 hours or whenever I respond. So you're going to need to do something else, right? And, and the student hates that, right? Like that's, that's, right. that's a, an experience they hate. And most of them would look at it and say, well, Steve's course didn't didn't allow my success there. But I also kind of find myself being like, I think it's kind of good that you you learn the life lesson of like, you should probably reach out before the day yeah. before the things do or whatever, whenever you're, you're trying to schedule yeah. a meeting. So it's like, would it be better to have some sort of deadline? And like, if you don't have the safety net up the stakes, so there's more of a pressure to do it, is it better to have some something there? Maybe they still get the lesson in sort of the life lesson or the um, uh, life success modeling that we're trying to get in some of this stuff. Um, I don't know the answer on this, but this is part of the challenge I have with, yeah. with the safety net approach is how good, like maybe said more, like the better your safety net is, I also think like in some ways, the more attractive it is to them to be like, oh, I have a safety right. net. I'll just do this approach and skip the right. real, the targeted learning opportunity. Yeah. So, I mean, I, in terms of, I mean, direct safety nets, right? So I, I do take late work, mm. but it is heavily penalized. Um, like, I mean, 20% per day that it's that it's late right and and the reason is because if you fall behind on one set of deliverables you're now late in starting the next set of deliverables and so you're going to be late on that one too and i'm trying to stop a cascade effect where you're consistently two or three weeks late with everything and we get to the end of the semester and you're just not done yeah um and so the penalty is something i've been kicked i've kicked around a lot like when I first started, it was 30%. Mm-hmm. And and then I eventually backed it off to 20%. And it was sort of, a, again, trying to find the right number that it was harsh enough that you wanted to avoid it, right? That you needed to plan your time. You needed to do better. Mm-hmm. Um, but not so punitive enough that it didn't take into account, I don't know, some somebody who just got a late start because they couldn't figure out you know, how to proceed with this problem or what building to zero in on or whatever. So I I don't know. I I don't know if it's the best safety or not. I don't know. I hate late work, but me too. Do you ever just wish we'd go back to almost a pass fail? I I, kind of, there's a part of me that just wants to go back to like who, who who got what they needed to get out of this. They pass, you know, I just, cause some of this stuff, like we have these, we need an A plus and an A and an A minus and a yeah. B plus and a B and all these things. And there are these sort of infinitesimally small like uh, uh, subdivisions here that make one one letter and one another letter. And so many times I just feel like that's not indicative of what someone really learned in this process. Yeah, and, I agree with that. and so it just feels like uh, I, I, 
I, I struggle with the same thing with late work and the, the game of how much currency do I deduct from your point mm -hmm. point bucket for the, for being late, you know? Cause you're trying to change behavior, right? It's, it's sort of, a, that's right. A penalty yeah. For behavior changing. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I enjoyed chatting. I still don't know how to yeah. do this necessarily, but I do like a number of the strategies you talked about. I like a number of the considerations you talked about when deciding just what to do. Like, when do I intervene? Do I get, let him struggle or not? Yeah. You know, some of those kinds of things I found to be um, helpful. Uh, any other thoughts you've got that you want to share or other strategies or, or thoughts related to this topic for a break? Maybe one last one, because I know we're sort of coming up on time here. Um, one that I found pretty effective in Capstone is encouraging students to talk to other students yeah. uh, and sort of explain their reasoning and explain sort of their solutions. So it's sort of a train the trainers model. Yeah. Like, you know, one student's really good. They know exactly what they did. They solve the problem really well. And just to have them talk to some of the other students, because I think it helps both of them. Like, I think it helps the one who already solved it to sort of explain it to someone else because they see how someone else is thinking about the problem. And then it helps the person that may be stuck by giving them a different way of looking at it. I don't yeah. know. So that was just something that, I think also works well. Yeah, that makes we so we do some some we do more like a peer review, but it's a similar idea of of adding a transparency to what others are doing. It's almost like the the other half of the game theory side of things where mm -hmm. they're like oh, this is what you're doing? That's way better mm -hmm. than what I'm doing. Well, if that, if I want an A and what you've done is world's mm -hmm. better, mine's only B yep. by comparison or whatever. So yeah, it does seem like it it would raise all ships to the, uh, there. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. There you go. Well, sounds good. Well, thanks for chatting. This was enjoyable. I uh, hope you as the listeners maybe got something out of this. If you're starting up your teaching journey or exploring some different options, um, or if we missed something and you've got strategies that we should be thinking about, uh, I would love to learn. So shoot us a note. Thank you so much for joining us. We will catch you on the next episode of Prophecy Hunter.